Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Climate deniers are on the hot seat as temperatures soar and extreme weather blows through communities across the country. Plus, oil pipelines are on pause or shut down completely, including the infamous Keystone XL pipeline. And a history-making appointment as the first African-American is named to lead the U.S. Forest Service. Those stories and more on our Environmental Roundtable. Later in the show, schools were forced to go remote during the pandemic, relying on visual cyber tools. So how did visually impaired and blind students navigate online school? They showed us, you know, what they were capable of, you know, because they wanted to be there. They wanted to be part of their classes and they persevered and and with the help of their amazing families, learned how to access that technology so that they could participate. How our neighbors at Perkins School for the Blind adapted their program to meet the moment. But first, joining me remotely, Dr. Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Hello, Dr. Bernstein. Hey, Callie. Dr. Heather Goldstone, Chief Communications Officer at Woodwell Climate Research Center and the former host of GBH's weekly science-focused radio show, Living Lab Radio. Welcome, Heather. Hi, Callie. Great to be with you. And Sam Payne, Digital Organizer and Communication Specialist at the Better Future Project. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. We're going to jump right into the heat conversation because it's just... Really, it's shocking. It's been so extreme to look at the Pacific Northwest and see those streets buckling and bridges, you know, uh, falling down. I mean, it was incredible. And this, of course, is a part of the country where this kind of heat has never happened. And if it got a little hot, it happened later. So for those of you who are expert in this arena, what did you think when you first heard about it? I'll start with you, Heather. Well, to see, as you said, infrastructure crumpling, to hear about the number of deaths, uh, the spike in sudden unexpected deaths, hundreds of people dying. I mean, that is shocking. And yet at the same time, it's all part of a trend and unfortunately not very shocking. We know what the processes are that are driving these sorts of heat waves. And this is unfortunately what we have to expect more of. So there were parts of North America that saw heat anomalies that are, statistically speaking, should be a once a millennium event. And unfortunately, we know that that's not going to be the case going forward. Dr. Bernstein, were you thinking, told you so? Well, I think I think Heather hit it on the head there. At once, this is shocking, but it's also entirely unsurprising. The scientific community, this was actually probably more shocking because all the climate models 
that predict sort of the potential of climate change to cause heat waves like this. In the Pacific Northwest, none of those temperatures were within the range of extreme temperatures that they would have expected. And it sent folks sort of going back to the drawing board. This has happened before in climate science, which has routinely underestimated the effects of temperature and also sea level rise. So I, I think that we need to be even more careful than we were before about heat, which as we know, and, and Heather alluded to, is already responsible for more health harms than all other natural disasters in the United States. And, and you know, I think the other thing that was particularly of note to me with this is the place that baked is a place that we thought was sort of safe territory. Mm. I mean, Portland, Oregon has one of the lowest penetrations of air conditioners in the country with good reason. People <laughs> don't think they need it. And so it, it sort of reinforced the idea that everybody has something at stake with this. And Sam. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Bernstein that something I found especially disturbing was that the models did not predict this, that models that even take into account accelerating effects of climate change did not foresee this coming. And it really, to me, exposes the limitations of a reactive strategy towards climate change, because it's impossible to identify where we are going to see climate crises emerge. Well, there's a lot to this heat story, and I want to talk about different aspects of it. But one of the first things I want to just have you all respond to is the whole heat dome, which we learned about as this was going on. So first, let's listen to ABC News' Ginger Z speaking about the heat dome that threatened the West Coast. It's not as flashy as some of the other natural phenomenon, but yes, heat will be a problem again. And here's where the heat dome really becomes problematic. It's not just, well, last time it was all-time records, which was just unbelievable. But this time, it's when you have heat, not just during the day, but in the overnight, when you get no relief. And when a dome of high pressure comes over and sticks around for days on end, that causes something we call subsidence. It has sinking air, the molecules move quicker, and that means it's hotter. It's when it is cumulative in the body, Lindsay, when we have the most problems with heat. So that was a short explanation of, of what Heat Dome was all about. I'll have you all weigh in more if you like. I should mention that ABC News' Ginger Z is a meteorologist, and she's become increasingly more vocal about the climate impacts of her reporting around weather. So, Dr. Bernstein, why should we be paying attention to this Heat Dome, and does it move around the country? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. So, so the heat dome is a consequence of the jet stream. And, you know, it's sort of ironic, but you may remember uh, earlier this year, there was the horrible winter storm that hit Texas and people were burning their furniture to stay warm. That was also a consequence of a destabilized jet stream. And, and there's some concern that the jet stream sort of is being more wavy <laughs> rather than staying put up in the Arctic in the summer and, and, and sort of a little further down in the winter because of melting of Arctic ice because of climate change. The scientific community is still on the fence on that. But uh, to Sam's earlier point is if we wait to really be definitive uh, about whether climate change is driving this more unstable jet stream, you know, we already have lots of reasons to act on climate change, but we will have even more unwelcome surprises like these extraordinary heat events, like the polar vortex, you know, we're, we're all getting new weather words these days, aren't we? Mm. Uh, that, 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 have been, uh, that have been happening just in the past year. 
Heather, you've said we need to be paying attention to these jet streams for all the reasons that Dr. Bernstein said. Now, Boston has had a lot of hot weather, too. Not as bad as so far of what happened on the uh, West Coast. But it's early and it's a lot. It's breaking records here. Is this part of the heat dome effect? Yeah, it is, as was record rainfall in the Midwest at the same time we were seeing record-breaking heat in the Pacific Northwest. Certain places in the Midwest broke rainfall records with like 10 inches of rain. We've also seen heat waves in Siberia and Europe a little bit earlier in June. And all of this, as Dr. Bernstein was saying, comes back to this wavier weaker, slower moving jet stream that allows these different weather systems, extremes in both directions to basically sit in place and become even more extreme. And one of the things that I think is really important to realize is how connected the whole climate system is, because what's causing that waviness and that weakening in the jet stream is this idea that as the Arctic warms disproportionately, it's warming uh, roughly three times faster than the rest of the globe. But as the Arctic warms three times faster, that difference isn't as much. And that difference is what drives the strength of the jet stream and keeps it straighter. So we do have inklings of And actually, I would say more than inklings of of what is causing this and how all these different parts of the climate system are connected. It's a mistake to convey the idea that scientists don't know what's going on and that this event completely threw our understanding of climate change up in the air. That's just not the case. Obviously, scientists are constantly looking at new observations, new events and refining the models. But I think one thing that's really important to recognize is that Every time scientists have, quote unquote, gotten it wrong, it's been in the direction that the reality is worse and climate change is happening faster than was previously projected. So this isn't an excuse to say, oh, well, scientists, you know, don't know all the details and it might not be as bad because every time Mother Nature has come back to prove that if we didn't have it totally nailed down, it was because we underestimated how Mm. bad it was going to be. And then I think the other thing, again, to drive home is just While all of this is connected and it is one global climate system, that doesn't mean that every place um, is going to be affected the same way. And you often hear people say, oh, well, you know, it's so cold here. And then you say the heat is connected to climate change. How can it do all of those things? And it's because it is this, you know, connected system where on one side of the jet stream, it's hot. And on the other side of the jet stream, it's rainy. But it's all part of that that bigger system. Well, first of all, Sam, weigh in if you care to. Sure. Yeah. Heather, I think you make some really great points that, uh, yeah, we are continually updating the scientific models. And I think especially your point that the scientific models tend to err on the side of it being less catastrophic than we are seeing just really brings home the need to act now because we know what we can be doing now to reduce the likelihood of these events and to better prepare our communities. And we may not know the exact details of how these variables will continue to compound and affect each other in ways that we do not yet understand. But we do have some very good ideas about what we can start doing now. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Dr. Heather Goldstone of Woodwell Climate Research Center, and Sam Payne of the Better Future Project. We're discussing the latest environmental stories you need to know. So does this finally put the stamp on this is human-driven? Because, you know, people will look at all that and be shocked by it and say, this is horrible, But still, Sam, not make the connection that humans have anything to do with making it worse or better. 
Sure. I think, you know, for decades, we've known that uh, humans contribute significantly to climate change. But I see the way that this question is brought up in the media a lot of the time as kind of dodging the question, because so what if climate change is created by humans or is not created by humans? The point is we're seeing it having disastrous consequences on our planet. And no matter what, we do have to address those. Uh, that being said, it is definitely exacerbated by human activity. And we have some very good ideas about what we can do to reduce humans' impact on climate change, and in some cases, even reverse by sequestering carbon dioxide. Uh, Heather, would you say it's mostly human-driven at this point? Oh, it's it's more than mostly. <laughs> in fact, if you take uh, just what human beings are doing in terms of fossil fuel emissions and changing land use, cutting down forests, it actually would drive more warming than what we're seeing. Um, it's just that there are some other activities that we've been doing, even things like polluting that sometimes mask some of that warming or, or control some of that warming. So yeah, this is human caused climate change. There has been no doubt about that in the scientific community for decades. We're not saying that climate change is causing any given weather event, but climate change is definitely making them more extreme. And we actually now have the scientific tools to be able to put numbers on that. And a study done within a week of the Pacific Northwest heat event found that it would have been almost impossible to reach those temperatures without the effects of human-caused climate change. So we can actually statistically go back, run models basically forward and backward under different conditions and figure out how likely was that extreme with or without the effects of climate change? And by doing that, we can now say for any given event um, that we you know, put through that test, how much worse or how much more likely that was made by climate change. So we really can start to draw these direct links to individual events even. Dr. Bernstein? To Sam's point, there's no doubt that humans are, are driving climate change. But to his point is, if we take the actions that we know we need to take to combat climate change, and that's primarily reducing our reliance on fossil fuels, what would happen? Well, we just put out a paper showing that if we implemented the Biden's 80 by 30 plan, we would save 300 plus thousand lives by 2030 and over a trillion dollars in healthcare costs. And oh, by the way, we'd also provide a livable planet for our children's future. But if you don't care about a livable planet for our children's future, how about caring about the 317,000 people and a trillion dollars of unnecessary healthcare bills that we could prevent by simply reducing our reliance on fossil fuels? So I'm sort of at the point where you know this discussion of whether humans are involved is you know if you're not, if you if you haven't gotten on that train yet, you you're not just left on the station; you're left on Pluto. Well, Miami instituted a first-of-a-kind chief heat officer. This is well before we had the latest extreme incidents happening, but it's obviously been extremely hot in Florida as well. And I just wanted uh, our listeners to hear a bit from her. This is the world's first chief heat officer, Jane Gilbert, speaking about Miami-Dade's heat problem this summer. So we're expecting a tenfold increase in the number of days with a heat index, a dangerous extreme heat index of 105 or more by mid-century. We could have close to three months of days at that level by then. So we really need to prepare. And I, I wanted you to hear her because before she had this job, she was the chief resilience officer and she was in charge of emergencies. So it's fascinating that, you know, 
moments after she was named the chief heat officer, you know, she has to rely on her skills for dealing with emergencies because this is now, these temperatures have become an emergency. And we're not even to August, which is usually the time when it's hottest. I mean, it's pretty shocking, Heather. It really is. And I actually want to just jump to her last few words there that, that we have to prepare, right? And and I was thinking this as, as Dr. Bernstein was speaking, you know, yes, we have to get past debating, is this human caused or not? Recognize the very clear science that it is. And the fact that it's human caused means that we have the power to do something about it. We can do a lot about it. And I feel like the conversation about how much we should do about it and how quickly often gets tied up in this lopsided conversation and lopsided equation where we talk about, you know, what's the the price tag on the president's climate plan? Uh, how much is it going to cost to, uh, you know, replace our electricity grid and, and switch entirely to renewable energy or to switch to uh, clean transportation? And what we leave out of that are some of the kinds of statistics that uh, Dr. Bernstein was citing about the costs of health impacts of climate change. We don't adequately balance that equation. We, we tend to pretend like if we do nothing, there's no cost, when in fact, the costs of climate risk um, are enormous, truly enormous. We have to really start grappling with just how damaging climate change is and is going to be. I want to move on to another subject, the uh, pipeline cancellations or shutdowns, Dr. Bernstein. We've had ongoing protests from lots of communities trying to shut down these oil pipelines. And I have to say, if you'd said to me a few years ago at the height of the protests that they would ever actually be shut down, I just would have said to you, that's just not going to happen, given the power of the corporate sector and the backing, certainly, of, of President Trump during his time in office. But now we have a situation where Keystone, Vihalia, and a Questar are all paused or shut down. What do you make of that, Dr. Bernstein? Well, I, I think it's a signal that the writing is on the wall for fossil fuels. These pipelines are, in many ways, been been undermined by not just political forces and financial forces, but the advocacy of communities that have been in the middle of their <laughs> paths, uh, which are often either Native American populations, people of color, and it's very hard to use fossil fuels not only because of climate change, but because they create infrastructure which no one wants in their backyard. These are not small pipelines. These are massive pipelines, strictly Keystone, that would have essentially mobilized a huge amount of fossil fuel reserves. But at the same time as this, we're seeing watershed moments in how the fossil fuel and particularly big oil is being handled. So you had ExxonMobil essentially have people put on the on their board who were essentially geared up to fight on climate change. You have uh, Shell being told by the Dutch uh, judicial system that they have to cut their emissions by half. These are all signs that many, many forces are, are really starting to, you know, tip things in the direction of moving away from fossil fuels. Well, Sam Payne, this is where you live. So what's your response? Hey, you know, I've been uh, cautiously optimistic seeing some of these pipelines be shut down. I think it shows that people power can work, at least in some scenarios. But at the same time, this isn't uh, across the board. We saw Joe Biden double down on line three recently in Minnesota, 
which uh, has many of the same problems as these other pipelines. It goes through indigenous area, uh, it breaks treaties, it would go through many different water sources. And I think, you know, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2018, put out a report that said we have 12 years to take serious action on climate change. And it takes a while to implement policy. So I think that it is ridiculous that in 2021, we are still even considering new fossil fuel projects. We have to move so far beyond that. And I see this as a good start, but I think we really have to keep up the momentum. Mm. Heather. Yeah, I mean, yes, we have to start acting like we are in a crisis, um, acting accordingly and shifting away from fossil fuels as rapidly as we can. If you think about the kinds of impacts that we've just been talking about, hundreds of deaths um, that we can attribute to climate change, to, to say things like we have 10 years to get to a certain point really, I think, diminishes the immensity of what we need to do and how quickly we need to do it to really address the crisis that we are in. Mm. Well, moving to yet another uh, subject, the first African-American named to lead the U.S. Forest Service. His name is Randy Moore, and he's been in the service for quite some time. He's described as a veteran. There's been a lot of conversation about public lands and, and trusts and who's, who owns and what heritage and all of that. This is a division of the Agriculture Department, the U.S. Forest Service, and he will oversee 193 million acres of public lands under his guidance. So this is startling because I was reminded of an Oprah conversation with her friend Gail King when they went camping in 2010. And back then, they'd made the comment along the way that they didn't know any black forest rangers. And so along the way on that trip, they ended up uh, visiting with National Park Ranger Shelton Johnson. Here they are interacting with him back in 2010. This is Oprah Winfrey and Gail King. Ranger Shelton felt not enough African-Americans visited our national parks. So Gail and I packed up our gear. We headed west to Yosemite to do our part. Shelton! Shelton! Yay! Two black people come to Yosemite. Black people in Yosemite. Black people in Yosemite. I uh, had to play that because it's a long leap from there to they're just being excited about black people being in Yosemite to this guy leading the whole U.S. Forest Service. It's quite something. And um, in our conversation about uh, heat, we know that uh, trees have a big impact. So he'll have he's in charge of all of this. So your response, Dr. Bernstein, did you know this guy? Had you heard of him before? I, I, I don't know him, but I think it's terrific and not merely on the basis of race. I mean, this guy, based upon what I've learned, has a very long track record, as you point out, Kelly, of being involved in the National Park Service. But the fact that he is the first Black American, I think, is, is an important watershed in the history of the National Park Service. You know, the environmental movement in the United States has been way too white and way too masculine. And in the national parks, the data suggests that minorities, particularly Black Americans, Latinx Americans, are underutilizers of these lands, which belong to all of us. You know, I think it's not by accident uh, that people who have been discriminated against and marginalized and who don't see themselves represented in the leadership of these places may not be as eager or have as much access to these places. But on the other side of it, there is more and more data. And as a pediatrician and, and seeing the 
youth mental health crisis unfold before my eyes this year, the critically important value of being in nature to protecting young minds. So if we see greater use of these national parks by Black Americans, by Latinx Americans, that would be an even more wonderful outcome. He's the first in 116 years, Heather, to lead the agency. Yeah, and we know that communities of color in this country are disproportionately impacted by climate change and other environmental burdens. And I should say not just, you know, elsewhere in the country. This is very true in Massachusetts. In fact, Massachusetts has some of the greatest environmental disparities based on race and income. And so to see the increase in diversity in leadership in federal agencies, and I'm, I'm referring here to the, you know this nomination and also to the fact that we now have Deb Holland, the first Native American woman to lead the Department of Interior in these positions of leadership on an issue that so impacts communities of color. And we also know that, that people of color in the United States um, tend to have some of the highest levels of concern you know, from public opinion polling about climate change and environmental issues. And so I just think this is uh, a huge step in the right direction to really see more diversity in the leadership of the federal agencies that in, in many cases are most responsible for helping to fix climate change and our other environmental issues. Sam? I think representation is so important. And Randy Moore, I was not familiar with him before he was appointed to this role, but after looking into his background, it seems like he has a lot of experience specifically with California's extreme weather conditions. And uh, people have called him a creative thinker who puts communities first. And I think that sort of thinking is going to be so important going forward as we respond to and anticipate climate events across the country. Yeah. And uh, now Gail and Oprah have somebody else to talk to. <laughs> I am concerned about these forever chemicals, which Dr. Bernstein and many others have pointed out uh, have been discovered. They were approved by EPA, surprisingly, years ago, showed up in the drilling and fracking as ground chemicals that just don't break down and now are in cosmetics. That gave me pause because the cosmetics they're in are waterproof mascara, which I use a lot, and some other things. This is um, kind of scary. And it, is there urgency around this, Dr. Bernstein? Well, let me start, Kelly, by, by giving a shout out to my colleague, Joe Allen. Joe wrote uh, a piece in the Washington Post uh, over three years ago now where he, he dubbed these chemicals forever chemicals, and that has really stuck. And the reason he did that is because they have a bond in them between a carbon atom and a, and a fluorine atom that uh, is one of the strongest in organic chemistry and doesn't break down for millennia. So the first issue here is that these things don't break down. And the second issue is that tens of millions of Americans, maybe 60 million Americans already have these compounds in our bodies. And, and essentially we have no research understanding in, in any level of detail what they're doing to our bodies. We routinely put chemicals into our lives without really doing any homework about whether they might affect our health at relatively low doses. We, we, we see if they're toxic, you know, if they're gonna make us drop dead instantly, but that's not the exposures that we mostly have. Europe has taken a very different approach and uh, we have a very powerful chemical lobby that has really pushed against any form of health impact assessment for chemicals at low levels. And we're seeing that now. The, the, the perfluorinated alkyl 
substances, PFOS, we also call them PFOAs. They've been used in all kinds of consumer products, as you point out, cosmetics, and they're getting also in, into water. And so communities around the United States, including in New Hampshire, in Massachusetts, on the Cape, have this now in their drinking water. And people are asking good questions like, how much of this is acceptable for me to be drinking? And should I have my blood tested? And, and the answer is we don't really have information to guide people's drinking water exposure and, and what is a safe level, although EPA is working on that guidance. And so it's a really sticky situation and it all comes back to how we, we really can do better with allowing chemicals into our environment. It's also in fast food packaging, Sam, which kind of sent me over the edge because I just thought about how much people are using that. And we're talking about popular restaurants, McDonald's and Sweet Greens and Wendy's may have some of this. They'd be in the boxes, the wrappers, the disposable bowls. I want to point out that McDonald's has said they're working to get it out of their packaging. I think by the end of this year, it may already be out. They were trying to trying for the first of 2021. So some are aware of this, but that's a little scary. Yeah, what I think is especially frustrating is that since these chemicals introduction, there have been activists raising alarm bells, uh, pointing to the, the molecule structure, pointing to the fact that we don't know the long-term consequences. And I think people right now are rather unwillingly being placed in an experiment where we will see how these chemicals affect us for decades and for generations. And as Dr. Bernstein said, we don't know because the way that uh, the EPA and the US government treats chemicals is to look and see if there's immediate harm now and then find out about long-term effects later. And we need to radically change that model because we've seen time and time again, new, very dangerous chemicals be introduced into our society and linger in people's bodies. So Heather, you know, I mentioned the waterproof mascara. It's also in long-lasting lipstick. How is this information getting out to people? Listen, if I wasn't doing this segment, I would not know this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's, that's that's a really good point. And it is often very hard, even if you're looking for the information, to really sort through um, because there's not necessarily all the science that we would want or all of the testing that we would want. And I think this goes to the point that's already been made about the way our regulatory system handles chemical approval. And I mean, it's not like this is the first time, right? Was it was it five years, 10 years ago that we were talking about BPA, right? Mm, and, right. and those chemicals are still around in certain ways. And those were in baby bottles and uh, coated on receipts in the store and, and all sorts of things. Um, and so it can be really difficult to get this, this information. Um, and I think there's I'm uh, maybe wandering outside of the science into my my own personal conjecture and opinion here, but I, I just I think it's kind of telling about a larger attitude that we have and this idea that we as human beings can't do anything that wouldn't be fixable. And I, I think we need to to gain a bit of humility, which may seem odd to say this is humility, but but to realize there are things that we can do to this planet and to ourselves that, that we can't really fix. These are not easy chemicals to to clean up. Climate change is not something that we can stuff back in the box. We're going to be experiencing the effects for a long time of these actions that we've already taken, even if we stop them now. It, it all comes back to us in the end. It's not something that we just kind of put out there and it benignly goes away. That's a perfect place to end this discussion. And this is why we continue to have discussions with you folks who are expert in this arena, because there's so much we don't know. So I thank you all for joining me today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Callie. It was great. Thank you so much. 
Dr. Aaron Bernstein is Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Heather Goldstone is Chief Communications Officer at Woodwell Climate Research Center and former host of GBH's weekly science-focused radio show, Living Lab Radio. Sam Payne is a digital organizer and communication specialist at the Better Future Project. Coming up, sight was critical for most students and teachers last year as Zoom screens replaced in-person learning, but visually impaired and blind students who rely on touch and tactile learning faced an additional challenge. The Watertown-based Perkins School for the Blind met the challenge and navigated distance learning with innovative class lessons and community-focused activities. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. <music> 